Hello. It seems increasingly likely that we will, in 18 months, see the election of a Labour government. It's also likely that that government will inherit a very challenging context. A country either in or just emerging from recession, having suffered stagnant or falling living standards for over 15 years. Public services still suffering the effects of austerity with unhappy and inadequately equipped staff. A country made poorer and more fragile by Brexit. The danger for such a newly elected government is that it's reduced almost immediately to crisis management, with little chance for ambition or idealism. But what if the response was instead to approach the task of running the country with a clear and explicit set of values, and the intention of using crisis to bring about transformation? If so, what might those values be, and what kind of radical choices might the application of those values lead to? If we were to reach a point like that when government had to choose between pragmatism and idealism, perhaps you could turn to a powerful new book that melds political philosophy with far-reaching policy recommendation. It's that book that we'll discuss today on Forward Vision. Brought to you by the Forward Institute, you're listening to the show that offers a fresh perspective on how to manage change and lead from the front. That's Forward Vision with your host, Matthew Taylor. I'm delighted to welcome Daniel Chandler, author of Free and Equal, What Would a Fair Society Look Like? Hi, Daniel. Welcome to Forward Vision. Hi, Matthew. Thank you for having me been thinking about this interview for some time, having really enjoyed reading the book. And I think we need to start off, don't we, really with you explaining the core ideas that occupy the first half of the book. And to do that, we're going to have to get to know somebody. And the person we're going to have to get to know is the political philosopher, John Rawls, because the whole book is based around explaining and then seeking to apply his ideas. So first of all, who was John Rawls? Yes. So I think of the book more as one inspired by rather than about rules. So it's not a historical look at his ideas, but really an attempt to bring his ideas into the present and show how they can be genuinely useful for addressing the kinds of challenges that we face today. So Rawls was an American philosopher, born in 1921, died in 2002, spent most of his life working as an academic philosopher, mostly based at Harvard. His most famous book is A Theory of Justice, which was published in 1971. And that book completely transformed academic political philosophy as a discipline and has given Rawls really an unparalleled status in the political thought of the 20th century. This is someone who's widely considered to be the most significant political philosopher of the 20th century, routinely compared to the greatest thinkers really in the history of Western thought, thinkers like Plato, Hobbes, Kant, John Stuart Mill, and yet surprisingly little known, I think, outside of academic philosophy. And a big part of the purpose of my book, Free and Equal, is to bring his ideas out of the academy and into our public debate, where I think they have really an enormous amount to offer. And I think what's really exciting about Rawls is that his ideas are not just philosophically interesting, they're practically useful. In particular, what we get from Rawls is a set of principles or values that we can use for thinking about what a better, fairer society would actually look like. 
maybe we'll come to the sort of details of those values in a second, but I think it's that constructive vision. Rawls talks about developing a realistic utopia, a vision of the best that a democratic society can be given the facts about human nature and how we think institutions might actually work in practice. But it's that constructive, hopeful vision that I think is so missing from our politics today and what we can get from Rawls and what makes him such a necessary thinker for our times. So Rawls kind of revives the school of political philosophy, sometimes referred to as a social contract theory. Now this we don't have time to get into that in great depth, but I think the way that I think about social contract theories is that in a way, they are ways of justifying action by those in authority in terms of the implicit agreement which exists between citizens and those in authority about how to run society. So for the benefit of listeners, in a sense, if you read Rawls or your work on Rawls, it can be read as an account of what is justified in terms of intervening in society because of the conditions which we need to have in order for society to flourish. And that's what takes him to his principles, because the principles are, what are the principles that we would want rulers to apply in a society based upon a set of values which we might all agree about? Is that a fair characterization? I think that sounds very fair. I think Rawls's starting point is this say, a recognition that in a society there can only be one set of laws. We all have to live under those laws and we have an obligation to justify those laws in a way that can make sense and be acceptable to everyone. And really the core idea at the heart of Rawls' philosophy is the idea of fairness, that society should be fair. And he uses that idea. I mean, he recognizes, I suppose, that different people have different conceptions of what exactly fairness means. And he develops this famous thought experiment, which he called the original position, which tries to get us from the very abstract idea of fairness, which maybe everyone agrees about in some sense, but then we sort of mean different things by it, towards this concrete set of principles, which you just mentioned, that we can then actually use to think about how to design our social and political institutions. So Rawls's idea is that if we want to know what a fair society would look like, we should imagine how we would choose to organize it if we didn't know which person we would be within that society, whether we would be rich or poor, black or white, gay, straight, Christian or Muslim. And I think it's one of those ideas that once you've heard it, it sort of seems so obvious that you can't believe you hadn't thought about it before and it's quite difficult to get it out of your head. And I think the first thing is that it's pretty obvious that if we were to think about society in that way, I don't think anyone would come up with societies, we organize it today, where millions of people or lots of people have to rely on food banks in order to put food on their table, where class, race, and gender shape people's opportunities in such a profound way. And what Rawls does, though, with that thought experiment is identify a set of principles, a constructive set of principles that we would use to think about how to organize our institutions. So first, he argues that if we didn't know what our position would be in society or what our values or identity would be, we would want to protect our most fundamental freedom. So he calls this the basic liberties principle. That's the first of his two principles. So the idea is that we would want to protect the set of fundamental freedoms, both personal freedoms like freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of sexuality, the freedoms that we need to live our own life according to our own beliefs. 
but also political freedoms, the freedoms that we need to play a role in politics as genuine equals. So that's Rawls's first principle. And in a sense, it's a defense of liberal democracy, but with a particularly strong and robust commitment to political equality and not just to personal liberal freedom. So it's very much liberal and democratic. And then alongside that first principle, he has a second equality principle that's really got two interlocking parts. The first is the idea of fair equality of opportunity, which is not just the absence of discrimination, but the idea that everyone should have a genuinely equal chance to develop their talents and abilities in life. I think that's actually a much more radical principle than people sometimes give it credit for, the idea of equality of opportunity and one that we are a long way away from achieving right now. But even so, for some liberals, equality of opportunity is the answer to questions about economic justice, as if once we give people equal opportunities, we don't need to care about inequality. And rules rejects that position and argues that as well as thinking about opportunities, we also need to make sure that outcomes are not equal, but they're fair. And that brings us to this second part of his second principle, which is really the most radical and innovative bit of Rawls's theory. And that's called the difference principle. And it's the idea that inequalities in society can be justified, but only if they ultimately end up benefiting everyone. So for example, inequalities might provide people with incentives to work hard and to study and to innovate, and that might lead to economic growth. And those inequalities might be justified, but only if that economic growth actually benefits everyone. And particularly, he argues that we should try to organize our economic system so that the least well-off in society are better off than they would be under any alternative economic system. So in that principle, it's a brilliant way to both recognize the importance of markets and of individual incentives, but to put that alongside a very strong commitment to making sure that the benefits of markets are widely shared in a way that there's nothing inherent to how markets work, either in theory or in practice, that means that the benefits will be shared. And that then justifies a very active role for the state in shaping our economic institutions to make sure that economic prosperity is genuinely shared. You explain these principles to us in the book and also explore some of the kind of criticisms of rules and, and explain generally why those criticisms are all the kind of misunderstand rules. And then in the second half of the book, you go on to explore the kind of consequences of trying to apply those values. And in a sense, I think what's interesting is that reading the first half of the book, if you're on the center left as I am, you nod your head throughout and then you come to, well, here are the policy implications. And at this point, although actually I agree with quite a lot of what you argue for, what that takes you to is that to apply the principles of this mild-mannered, progressive, thoughtful man, it takes you to pretty radical places. So it takes you towards arguing for pretty ambitious universal basic income. It takes you towards wanting to abolish private education, to institute widespread program of industrial democracy. It is quite a radical manifesto, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I mean, the first thing I was just thinking that I hope that the first part of the book will appeal beyond just the centre-left. And I think part of what's so attractive about Rawls's principles is that he starts in this place with this idea of fairness and the thought experiment that we just discussed. But I think really has an intuitive appeal right across the political spectrum. 
and that it forces each of us from whatever our political identities or preconceptions are to reconsider our political views. That's something I experienced in the process of writing the book too. And so I think that's part of what's so sort of brilliant and attractive about Rawls's theory. But as you said, really the purpose of the book ultimately is to do what Rawls didn't really do, which is to spell out how it is that we could put these rather abstract sounding principles into practice. And I'm both an economist and a philosopher. And so that was really the sort of mission of my book to pick up where Rawls left off and flesh out how he could put his vision into practice. And as you say, I think what you'd see is that taking this set of liberal and quite familiar sounding principles seriously really points to some very radical conclusions. And I think that's part of the argument that I'm trying to make to the book is an argument made in part towards people who are in the broad liberal center of our political debate and to say, look, if you take your liberalism seriously, this is the leading liberal philosopher of the 20th century. And if you take his liberalism seriously, it really points you towards some pretty radical changes to our political and economic institutions. Yeah. And I think this was something that Daniel, the book maybe dwell on quite a lot. This podcast is directed to leaders in particular, sponsored by the Forward Institute, which does splendid work with leaders around kind of ethics. And I guess, you know, reading the book, it it made me think about how hard it is to take a truly values-based approach to thinking about leadership. Because if you do that, if you apply the kind of intellectual discipline that, that Rawls applies, you are going to come up with some pretty radical challenges to the way things are organized right now. And I think that that's something that we we kind of duck. I mean, I remember having a conversation a couple of years ago with a group of HR managers, and I, I said to them, have you had a conversation in your organization about purpose? Because it's very much kind of fashionable to have conversations about purpose in organizations. And they all said, oh, yes, no, we had a conversation about purpose. And these were private sector HR managers. And I said to them, great, well, what dilemmas did that conversation throw up? And none of them could name a dilemma. So I said to them, well, look, I don't know what it is you've been talking about, but I'm not sure it's really been a conversation about values and purpose, because it's very hard to imagine how you could have a conversation about values and purpose that wouldn't throw up some really difficult dilemmas about how you organize yourselves. And I, I wonder whether this political philosophy you would have saw would have been the kind of day-to-day -day bread and butter of politicians, that they would be really interested in political philosophy and they want to apply it. But I think this is the problem, isn't it? Is that if you take political philosophy seriously, it takes you to some very difficult places in relation to policy. Yeah. You know, I think there's a tendency, I guess, within politics, and maybe particularly at the moment where I think there really is an absence of longer-term vision, just to focus on short-term political and electoral strategy. So what do you need to do to win the next election? And what sorts of incremental changes might that make possible? And I think that's necessary. You need to think that way in a democratic society because you can't bring about change unless you win an election. But I think we need sitting alongside that and what I think political philosophy contributes to the conversation and what I've tried to do in my book is also to have a long-term vision of what we would ideally be aiming towards. And I think that's something that maybe center-left politics in particular, which, as you say, in a sense is philosophically where I think these ideas in this book will most appeal, 
that the centre-left has been particularly bad at setting out that longer-term vision, that it's been more focused on pragmatic politics and incremental change. And I think that it's lost something as a result. It's lost the ability to really inspire people to feel excited and motivated to get engaged in centre-left politics in a way that maybe the socialist tradition is able to do. And I think actually also far-right populist parties also do very well. They have pretty radical ideas about how we need to change society that maybe aren't necessarily politically pragmatic. And so I think the way that I see the book, the book is ultimately written for a political audience. I want it to have a political impact, not because I think the Labour Party or any other progressive party might adopt all of these quite radical ideas for the next election, but because I think what I want to see is a more constructive conversation about the tensions between short-term political strategy and long-term goals. And you know, I'm not sure exactly where you end up about how far you can go at the next election, exactly how you manage those challenges and turn this vision into a realistic strategy. And it's in a sense, a sort of question for a next book. But I think at least what I hope to do is get that conversation going to set out this longer-term vision in a way, use that to flesh out some of the challenges that that long-term vision presents to progressive politics right now, because it calls for such far-reaching change, and then start to think seriously about how what is the strategy for actually changing our society in a more fundamental way, albeit over the longer term. One thing that's interesting here, Daniel, is if you look at this question of fairness, there's a kind of paradox, which is that in certain domains of life, we absolutely accept the principle of fairness and we apply it with a kind of Rawlsian rigor, it seems to me. And then in others, we don't at all. So in the workplace, for example, if it's a reasonably run workplace with good HR policies and a commitment to equality, diversity and inclusion, there will be a very, very clear commitment to treat people in the same way, regardless of their gender, sexuality, race, and also to an extent, formally speaking, in relation to the law, there will similarly be that commitment. So in, in certain domains of life, in the kind of formal areas of equality, in the way we treat people at work, in front of the law, we apply a kind of, as I say, a Rawlsian rigor. But yet, in reality, in terms of the actual resources that we have, in terms of kind of class, then we are a deeply unequal society. And indeed, to talk about what would actually be involved in achieving economic equality, well, it would seem like a dangerous thing to do. How do you feel about this kind of peculiarity of the fact that in certain domains, we take fairness so seriously, in others, we ignore it so completely? Yeah. Maybe I'm overly optimistic, but I take a hopeful message in a sense from that insight, which is that the idea of fairness, I think, really does have an incredibly wide appeal. And it is possible to organize institutions and to act in ways that live up to that ideal. And I think what I hope to do is to sort of engage that sense that people have and encourage them to apply that to our wider political and social institutions. And I mean, coming back to the question of the workplace, which is something that I'm very interested in and, and write about quite a bit in the book. I think on the one hand, you are right that there are firms that treat their workers fairly. But I think the problem with our system at the moment is that that really is left to 
Some employers treat their workers well, others don't. It's really down to employers to make that choice. And I think we sort of take for granted that it's ultimately owners and managers that will have all of the formal decision-making powers in firms and forget that that itself, that's a choice that we've made as a society to invest decision-making powers ultimately in the hands of owners through the way that they're able to elect the board and the board selects the management. And so they're ultimately the sort of final decision makers. So, I mean, that's one area that I really think quite radical and far-reaching changes are justified. So I make the case in the book for adopting a version of the German co-management system where workers and owners share power on much more equal terms through representation on boards, through works councils that have meaningful decision-making rights. And again, I mean, I, I suppose that's an area where I think we could extend the principle of fairness much more widely in a way that would really change people's daily lives in a very significant way. I mean, we, people spend so much of their adult lives in work, and yet for lots of people, that experience is not one of, of sort of individual meaning and flourishing in the way that it could be, but one of subservience and ill treatment, particularly for the lowest paid and lowest skilled workers in our society. So on the one hand, although you're right that some workplaces are a model of us taking ideas of fairness seriously, if we really are committed to that ideal, we need to find ways to extend that to every citizen as a right rather than just as something that a, a lucky few get because they've ended up with the right employer. Yeah, I get that, Dan, but I, I think in a way I'm, I'm making a slightly different point, which is that you could have a workplace, let's say a, a social care employer, who could apply HR rules effectively. And that would mean that they would be very strict about the fact that there, there was any evidence that somebody had been treated differently because they were a woman or because they were black or because they were gay or because they were even disabled, that that would be unacceptable. And indeed, were you to do that as a manager, you'd be disciplined. And was a member of staff able to prove that, then they would win an employment tribunal. But yet, if you stood back from that company, you would say, yes, but nearly all the low-paid work in that company is being done by women or by people from black and minority ethnic backgrounds. The people at the top of the company are much more likely to be white and to be privileged. And the people who own the company, maybe it's ultimately owned by some kind of hedge fund or whatever, well, they will be in the elite of society in a group of people who will be perpetuating inequality. So I guess what that takes me to is that I have a confession to me. I enjoyed the book, Daniel, but I always found political philosophy rather arid. And I find it arid because it doesn't really engage on the one hand with power and on the other hand with, as it were, culture and change. If we have these two completely different paradigms existing side by side in modern society, what is it that will enable the former paradigm, the paradigm of formal equality, to influence the latter paradigm, which is the paradigm of actual social inequality? I mean, I guess the answer is it's sort of the role of politics to make that happen, to put forward a compelling vision of a fairer and more equal society and to persuade people to get behind it. I don't think that political philosophy can do that work on its own. And I agree, in a sense, that's a limitation both of political philosophy and in a sense of my book in that I don't really spell out in detail how it is that we could build a social and political movement that would put these ideas into practice. I suppose the way that I think about the book is that it provides an essential ingredient for that kind of movement, which is a clear vision of, of what it is that we would be aiming for, of why that vision is justified, and also a description of 
institutions that would actually work in practice so that we have confidence that we would be fighting and campaigning for something that actually could exist that isn't just a purely utopian idea. But I don't think of what's in the book as sufficient in its own right, I guess, to bring about the kinds of change that I want. I think that it needs to be combined with, I think what you're sort of, in a sense, saying that you want more of, which is a a sort of a richer social and political cultural theory about how exactly we could go about bringing change. And I suppose I, I wish I had the answers to those questions, but in a sense, I sort of wanted to take on one part of that puzzle, which I thought was really missing, which is setting out a vision of where it is that we want to get to. I'm now and in future work, I guess, to engage more with the social and political questions of how we bring that about. Does that at least make sense of the way that, that I'm thinking? It does. It does. I think what it takes me to is this question of dissonance. The dissonance that I suspect a lot of people listening, when they hear about the Rawls's thought experiment, they find that idea compelling, that idea that we ought to organize society based upon what we want society to be, where we'd have no knowledge of where we would be in that society. There is a, a very compelling quality to that. And as I say, there are domains of our lives, like employment law, for example, where we take principles very seriously. We know, obviously I work with the health service, we know that 90% of the population signs up to the core egalitarian principles of the health service, which are, I would say, quite Rawlsian. Here's a fundamental aspect of our well-being health. And we want a society where we treat people equally in regard to that. But then this is a, also a society which is deeply hostile to inheritance tax. We seem deeply committed to the idea that people can pass on wealth from generation to generation, even though that obviously infringes any idea of social justice. So I guess reading the book, I keep coming back to this question of the relationship between values and action and what that means for leaders and also how we can explore why it is that we accept the legitimacy of these values in certain domains and completely fail to apply them in others. <laughs> I think I sort of, in a way, I have the same questions. And I think what's important to remember, maybe looking back to the NHS, is just, I suppose, the extent to which politics and politicians have agency to shape values and to use values to build political movements. It wasn't always the case that there was such a strong consensus around the kinds of egalitarian principles that underpin the NHS and that have such widespread support today. And I suppose, again, that gives me hope that it's possible to extend the, the sort of scope of fairness to other domains in life, but that doing that requires vision and leadership. And I, I suppose my maybe part of my response to your challenge, in a sense, is just, I suppose, to remember the degree to which values and vision do matter in practical politics that I guess most people don't respond to the sort of detail of individual policies. They respond to narratives about where a society is, where it ought to be going, and that the kind of moral vision that we get from a thinker like Rawls can be the basis for that kind of narrative. And I think a more values-based politics is maybe more relevant today than ever when class identities that once maybe underpinned progressive politics have been weakening. And I think that the future of progressive politics now depends much more on actively building coalitions across different groups 
groups that may have different interests and identities. And I think a clear set of strong values that have a universal appeal in the way that I think ideas about fairness and Rawls's philosophy can do, that that's the way to sort of knit a coalition together that could bring about change. And I suppose that's the hope that at least the book could help to overcome some of that dissonance between how we might want things to be and how they are is by bringing that vision back to politics and recognizing the potential of that vision to actually motivate people to get involved and bring about change. Yes. Fascinating. And um, I was going to make this point after we'd finished our conversation, my closing remark, but I'm going to make it to you, Dan, because I'm fascinated to know what your kind of response to it is. I'm just reading a, a wonderful book, which we're going to have on Forward Vision soon about the history of rules. And I'm reading about the Benedictine monks. And the Benedictine monks have a set of rules. And they're very, very strict about the time you have to turn up to eat, about what you eat, about you have one glass of wine, you don't speak over your food and all of this. But actually, underneath all of those rules are then a set of exemptions, which basically say, well, but you don't have to do this if the abbot doesn't think you should do it. So it kind of says, you know, you should only have one glass of wine unless the abbot feels you've worked particularly hard or there's a particular reason. You shouldn't ever talk while you're eating, unless the abbot thinks that there is a reason for you to need to talk. So what's kind of fascinating about it is it's a set of rules that is defined as much by the recognition that they can't be fully applied as by their application. Now, I guess the reason I say that is because I, I think that what we need to do is to say it can sometimes feel dangerous to talk genuinely about our values because to talk genuinely about our values exposes almost immediately the gap between those values and reality and can then lead to a kind of fatalism or a cynicism. And I think what I want to say is that actually what politicians maybe need to do more and what leaders need to do more is to say, look, we have a set of values. Actually, it's going to be incredibly hard to apply those values in the real world in which we live. But let's have a conversation at least about why it's hard. And this, of course, so this is such a long-winded question now, but in a way, this does take us back to rules because it takes us back to rules in the sense that rules says, look, I want a fair society, but if you can demonstrate that an intervention into society will not make it fairer, but will actually be better for society as a whole, that it might not reduce inequality, but as long as it makes the least well-off improves the quality of their lives, then it might be justified. So I wonder whether this question we're discussing about the relationship between values and action, that Rawls himself has some kind of answer to that, which is have a very clear set of values, but be willing to have an open conversation about whether or not, as it were, pursuing those values now today 100% is actually the right thing to do, that maybe there are grounds for saying we can hold the values but not apply them rigidly because of the reality of the organization we lead or the society we lead. Yeah, I think I'm, actually, I agree with you about that. I think I'm very much on the same page. I think what's helpful about rules is that it gives us an, a destination that we can be aiming for, but we need to have a realistic conversation about how far we can go. You know, I'm not rigidly attached to the idea of a universal basic income. I think for, so just to take that as an example, I'm in favor of a universal-based kingdom because I think it would be a way to 
better support the dignity and self-respect of the least well-off in society. But there are other ways of achieving that same goal. Maybe there are other ways that might be ultimately better. People would disagree about whether a universal basic income is the best solution or not. And whatever the best solution is, there might be other incremental steps that are more realistic in the short term. So I'm completely with you that we should be having those kinds of pragmatic conversations about what we can do next and that having a clear set of values allows us to have that conversation in a more constructive and fruitful way. Just to come back to what you said about whether the sense that it can feel dangerous maybe to talk about our values because in sort of identifying or revealing to us the gap between our values and present reality that can lead to fatalism. I think there's an equal danger in not talking about values and in not having a vision of a society that would be not just incrementally better, but radically so. I think that that can also lead to fatalism. And I think my sense is that at the moment, that kind of fatalism is almost more of the problem, the sense that we've lost our ability to imagine what a genuinely better, fairer society would look like. That's what leads people, I think, to maybe abandon the ideals of liberal democracy altogether because they think, well, this isn't good enough. I can't see any way to make it better. Or the only alternatives that seem to be radically different reject liberal democracy altogether. And so maybe that's what I should do. So I think it's also important that even within a liberal democratic society, we do still have a sense of values and long-term vision and that that can also be a sense of optimism and hope as, rather than despair. I suppose whether it makes you feel hopeful or fatalistic, maybe that's partly a function of personality, but I think it's probably also a function of the politics that you find yourself in and whether you feel there's a movement building towards the kinds of changes that you'd like to see, even if we don't think that it's possible to bring them about at the next election. So I think then that thinking of organizational leaders now, that if as an organizational leader, you would have a conversation which started with Rawls's thought experiment and said, if you didn't know where you were going to be in this organization. How would you want it to be organized? That could be a conversation that would be powerful because even if it were to end up suggesting that things needed to change dramatically, you could still have a conversation about what is realistic now because in the end, there'd be no point pursuing radical change if it simply meant the organization was going to go bankrupt or fail or fall over. And Rawls himself would permit that. Rawls himself would say, you know, there's no point pursuing perfection if you do that in a way which is going to end up harming society and particularly harming those who are least well off. So I want to say to people, don't be frightened of political philosophy. Don't be frightened of the radicalism of Rawls. Do read Free and Equal by Daniel Chandler. And it might encourage you in whatever leadership role you have to think about the power of a conversation about fairness and about values. Daniel, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. The Forward Institute is a non-profit organisation with the mission of building a movement for responsible leadership. With a network of global business leaders, the Forward Institute facilitates cross-sector learning, creating space for challenging conversations and exploring the very real dilemmas leaders face. For more information, visit forward.institute.